0: Uh, really communicating uh, how we can be united with Christ in his death and resurrection in the moment of baptism. Uh, And so it's through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus, that we can have a new life. And uh, I love what Lisa had shared this morning with the scripture in Revelation 22. Uh, I thought she was going to share our theme passage for the year, which we haven't talked about in months, uh, but we had a theme passage at the beginning of the year in Revelation 21. It was uh, something about all things new, that Jesus is coming to be- make all things new. Uh, I think a lot of what we're going to talk about today is about Jesus through the gospel making us new. Uh, someday that's going to be gloriously true. We sang a bunch of songs today about glory, uh, which was really encouraging. Uh, But in the meantime, that's in partial ways true. There's a process by which we're being transformed and we're being made new. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about that today in Romans 7. Uh, Here's a little snapshot. So there's some really clunky words in the book of Romans. Uh, One of them we've mentioned a few times, the idea of justification, uh, kind of a religious clunky term. The other one is glorification, which we haven't so much talked about. Uh, but here's sort of a simple way to describe what those words mean. Justification is the point at time when your penalty, the penalty of sin is removed from your life. Uh, now, in one sense, that's a little bit of a superficial definition, because it's actually not just God taking away the penalty of our sin, but he's also bestowing this righteousness upon our life, uh, a righteousness that we didn't earn, Uh, And so there's this incredible thing that happens at the point someone becomes a Christian, when they're justified. Uh, In the future, there's going to be a time of glorification when the presence of sin is completely removed from our life. Uh, All of the the devastating effects of sin uh, will be no more, will be with God for all of eternity. In the meantime, what that means is that there's this power of sin that is still at work in our life. And when we become Christians, there's also the power of the Holy Spirit that's uh, at war. There's a conflict going on. Uh, And so as we grow as Christians, it's this idea of sanctification, us overcoming the power of sin with the power of God's Holy Spirit. Now, in Romans chapter 7, I think what Paul talks a lot more about is less about the Holy Spirit. That'll come in Romans chapter 8. But in Romans chapter 7, what we, we read about is this, experience that Christians often go through that we can sometimes really easily identify with, but it's this sort of frustrating experience as a Christian. You ever get frustrated as a Christian? Frustrated with sin, frustrated with the battle that's going on inside of us. Uh, Actually, those that are not yet Christian sometimes don't have that frustration going on. Uh, Actually, it's when you become a Christian and there's this battle that's going on, you're fighting against the power of sin, and it can be a really frustrating experience uh, for those that have really waded into that and experienced it. Throughout Romans chapter 7, Paul refers quite a bit to the law uh, or its synonyms. So 35 times in chapter 7 and a few times in the first few verses of chapter 8, Paul references the law. And I think if you've been tracking with us throughout the book of Romans, you might be suspicious of what the Apostle Paul actually thought about the law. So just imagine, if you were a first century Jew, uh, you were somebody that loved the law. Uh, Actually, David Hahn, I think, read one of the Psalms that communicate uh, just this lifting up of God's law. Because the law was so central uh, to who you were as a Jewish man or woman. And so you read Psalms like Psalm 1, or Psalm 19, or Psalm 119, and it's just lifting up the law, rejoicing in the law. And then, if you were a first century Jew, imagine stumbling into some church in the middle of Rome, and you get there, and they happen to have just received a letter from the Apostle Paul called Romans, what we call Romans, And they begin reading this letter and you get six chapters in and suddenly you'd start wondering what this Christian message is all about because it seems to be almost denigrating this Old Testament law that was so important to a Jewish person. So for instance, chapter three, the end of chapter three, it talks about how the Old Testament law reveals sin and condemns the sinner. In chapter 4, in verse 15, it talks about how the law brings wrath, and uh, it defines transgression. At the end of chapter 5, it talks about how the law has been added so that trespass might increase. One of the challenging ones is chapter 3, verse 21, where it says, God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel apart from the law. And even in the last chapter that Steve preached on, in chapter 6, verse 15, it says, we are no longer under the law, we're under grace. Mm -hmm. And so you got to imagine what a first century Jew must be thinking. This would be like burning the U.S. Constitution in the middle of Washington, D.C. This looks strange. And so as you get into Romans chapter 7, he's going to talk quite a bit about the law and how we should view the law as Christians, And I think it gives us some great insight because the law is still important, although it can never save us. And so let's look here in chapter 7 in verse 1. In verse 1, it says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, A married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ That you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code stop there. The first thing I want to talk about is this vision that God has for our life as Christians, that we would be fruitful as Christians. Uh, The principle that Paul talks about here is that the law has authority over someone as long as that person is alive, right? Now, we know this is true even in civil law today. As long as somebody's alive, the law uh, matters, but death terminates the law's authority over the person who dies. And so, for instance, back in 2001, there was a big case, uh, some of us remember this, about Enron. And Enron, the CEO, was charged with 10 counts of securities fraud and related charges. A couple months later, he's on vacation and he dies. And so the federal court, district court judge vacates his charges. People try to file all these civil suits against his estate, but it won't work because he's dead. They won't be able to recover punitive damages, and Paul is saying that the Old Testament law functions like that. Once someone dies, it's no longer in effect. He goes on and he gives this illustration, and it's basically an illustration about a woman bound to her husband by law, but if the husband dies, she's released from the law and free to marry another husband. Now, it's kind of hard to think through everything. You might have to go back and read through it on your own. But uh, as you think about this illustration that Paul gives about marriage, most people interpret this as people being married to the law, as though the law is the first husband, but then they're remarried to Christ, which really doesn't fit the illustration that we read. Because in the illustration, it's the husband that dies, but in that interpretation, the woman dies and remar- remarries. And so you could look at it, and you could just say, well, maybe Paul wasn't being all that precise. Uh, and so let's not get into be too picky. But I think the assumption that the first husband is the, is the law is wrong. There's two humanities that we talked about back in chapter five, right? There's those that are in Adam and those that are in Christ. And we could say it a different way those that are married to Adam and those that are married to Christ. And so the Jews, the way they would have thought about the law is that, you know, we know that there's a mess that Adam created. And so they thought about the law as though the law actually separated them from the mess that was in Adam and established their relationship with God. And what Paul is actually saying is actually the law just showed you that you have just as much of a mess as Adam and in fact, it established not your relationship with God, but with Adam. And so the old self, Israel, is married to Adam. But when the old self dies, now you're free to marry another, which is Christ. We're free to, to belong to Jesus. And so the goal in all of this is that we would bear fruit for God. We would have this fruitful relationship with God that's born out of uh, this abiding relationship ...with Jesus. And so how's that relationship with Jesus going? You know, I love this. He says that we're to serve in the new way of the Spirit. There's this picture of bearing fruit in our lives. And it's this idea that I think you could actually trace it all throughout the Old Testament, right? In the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, it's this idea of being fruitful and multiplying... And then you see all these images of God's people being a vineyard. And sometimes that vineyard is desolate and a wasteland. And there's a passage in Jeremiah 12 that says to the shepherds of Israel, he says that it's become desolate because there's no one who cares. It's this tragic passage that this Israel has become this desolate wasteland. And then you get to the New Testament and you start reading about in John 15 where Jesus says, I am the true vine. And those that have this abiding relationship in him will go to, to bear fruit, fruit that glorifies God. And so this is what God wants for all of us, this fruitful, vibrant relationship with God. You know, in the last chapter... In Romans 6, it's this phrase that we read that we're slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. And so righteousness is not just doing the right thing. It's having a right relationship with God. And out of that, we begin to do the right things. And that leads to holiness, which means that we're going to live these distinctively Christian lives. We're totally different than the world around us because of our relationship with Jesus and the fruit that we bear. You know, I think Christians often find ways of distinguishing who is a Christian and who is not in really superficial ways that overlook the idea of being transformed and bearing fruit and having this vibrant relationship with God. There's an article that was written in GQ magazine. You probably knew I read GQ magazine, right? Uh, So GQ magazine, there was an article that was written uh, by a freelance writer. And what he decided to do was he was going to immerse himself into what he perceived to be the Christian subculture in America. And so he just immersed himself for seven days into... Christian music, and Christian TV, and Christian books, and Christian nutrition guides, and Christian prayer guides, and he spoke very candidly about what he thought of all of that. This is what he said. He said, if a person is going to waste his life cranking the stereo, clicking the remote, reading paperback pulp, and chasing diet fads, he may as well save his soul while he's at it. Holy living no longer requires self-denial. And then he goes on to offer this penetrating critique of what he saw as the Christian subculture, which he called the ark culture, referring to Noah's Ark. And he said, the problem is lack of faith. Ark culture is just a bad copy of the mainstream, not a truly distinctive or separate achievement And without the courage to lead, it numbly follows, picking up the major media's scraps and gluing them back together with a cross on top. He's painting a picture that there's a cheesiness to sometimes the religious world all around us, and we could see those things as the things that make us distinct, rather than this rich, vibrant, fruitful relationship with God that God desires us to have. How many of you like musicals? A few of us. How many of you like Hamilton? A few of us? Okay. Uh, Here's what one author said, which I agree with. The problem I have with musicals is that nobody's life is realistically like that. So who goes through their life as though it were relatively normal, only to randomly burst into song and dance and often in chorus with other people? So how does that work? Do you plan out when you're gonna sing or is it like falling in love and you just know? (laughs) Do you prepare songs and choreography for many different moods and situations ahead of time or do you just make it up on the fly? And then this author goes on, he says, sci-fi movies are more realistic. Aliens invading space is way more plausible than my neighbor Dion and I singing to each other across the fence about our days. And then this is the observation he made. He said, I had this sickening realization. I'm a Christian, which is not the sickening part, but my life is a musical. Most of my life looks relatively normal, but then at prescribed times of the week, I meet with other relatively normal people and start singing. An hour or so later, I and everyone else stop singing. We all go about our business as though nothing happened. You know, I think I point to those two things because I think there's ways that we could really easily be deceived by what's going on in our relationship with God. That what God wants from us is not just a Sunday morning Christianity, but he wants this relationship that's ongoing. It's this abiding walk with God where we're bearing fruit and it's transforming us and it's leading us to this holiness that God desires us to have. I don't want to be just like the rest of the world and just cut and paste a cross on top of the cheesy things that go on in the world all around us. You know, as we think about fruits that we can bear, you know, fruits of the Spirit, we certainly think about those in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, I think about just deep relationships in the church. I think about making new disciples. One that caught my attention was Hebrews 13, verse 15, that says. It talks about the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. One of the fruits that we bear is this sacrifice of praise. And I think we could really easily think about that as just singing the right lyrics on a Sunday. I think praise goes way beyond that. It's about what's in your heart, what boils up out of your heart and is on your lips because you're excited about God. You know, I love what Steve said last Sunday when he talked about, I I hope this theology doesn't bore you. Because when somebody has this abiding relationship with God, they're excited about what God is doing. They're excited about who God is. It's boiling up out of their heart so that they praise God. It's easy to talk about God when you love God and have this relationship with God. You know, this is the vision that God has for us is to live this fruitful life. Life that he has in mind. Now, uh, it's really challenging because as you go on in this chapter, what we find is that you got this big old problem of sin, right? Uh, So he wants us to be fruitful, but then there's this realization of being sinful. And in verse 7 it says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Steve's translation is, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard, right? Uh, Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means, nevertheless. In order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. You know, one of the functions of God's law was to expose our sin, right? It says, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, that sin would become utterly sinful. So I got a few questions. Are you under the impression that any time you have sin, you would be able to recognize it? Is there a possibility that by yourself, you would not be able to recognize your sin? I'll ask it a different way. Can anything that you love ever really be bad? If it were bad, wouldn't you simply not love it? The very fact that you love it, doesn't that suggest there's something lovely about it? My point is, is that I don't think we are very good at being a barometer of our own hearts. I don't think we're very good at recognizing what's truly going on deep within us. You know, the law, far from being sinful, it says it's holy, righteous, and good. It exposes the true condition of what's going on in your heart. Now, as I read through this section, I found it really personally convicting that the one out of the ten commandments that Paul references is this commandment, the tenth commandment, you shall not covet. I don't hear people talk too much about the idea of coveting. You know, you think about the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. The last commandment of the ten is, you shall not covet. So they bracket the other eight commandments there. And I think it's because idolatry and coveting really go hand in hand. And they're at the root of all the other sins that the Ten Commandments lays out. Coveting is when we desire our neighbor's possessions for ourselves rather than loving our neighbor as ourselves. If you think about literal idolatry, it's when we value creation more than the creator, but in coveting, we also value our neighbor's things more than our neighbor, who is to bear the image of God. So what happens when we covet is that that which our neighbor possesses, we rob God of the glory that he deserves, and we rob our neighbor of the dignity that they deserve. See, what happens in covetousness is that it makes ourselves uneasy because there's all sorts of desires that are being unmet uh, that are within us. It begins to lead to quarrelsome relationships with others and it makes us unthankful to God which saps us of our strength as we chase after all sorts of things that we covet after. I think what Paul's getting at is that our desires run rampant and when Paul saw that, He recognized the true nature of his own heart. You know, the New Testament frequently refers to this sort of compulsive, idolatrous worship or coveting as epithumia. It's this Greek word that basically means over-desires. So it's having desires, but they're like hyper-desires. We're wanting something beyond what God has allotted for us to have. It's wanting a good thing too much. And so I can see why Paul spoke of sin becoming utterly sinful because the world we live in is a factory for comparison and entitlement, and it just breeds desire. Our world is masterful at amplifying desires for what you don't have and frankly don't need. Social media and Amazon and the various AI devices are basically curating a campaign ad to stimulate your covetousness in your life. It's working every day to just flare up your desires. Yeah, I think in my own life, I I see, you know, I go online, I go on Facebook, I can see all the friends and peers that I have, some of which I don't know very well, but nonetheless, they're a friend on Facebook, and so I can see all the things that are going on in their life, at least the good things that they want to show, and so I see it when people buy the house and upgrade the house and they buy the new tech device and they buy the new car or upgrade their car. And before you know it, I got desires that are creeping up in my heart that I didn't even realize were there. You know, I start to desire having the family dog. That's the, that's the thing I think about once in a while. This is sort of odd because actually when Stevie and I were dating, uh, somebody told Stevie... That because I didn't want a dog when we were dating. So someone actually said, Stevie, you really need to consider whether you want to pursue this relationship, because he really doesn't want a dog. And Stevie will tell you to this day, she really had to think about it. So uh, now, years later, I'm kind of the one that's like, oh, I'd love to have a family dog. Uh, I'd be so excited to have a dog in our family, to bring a puppy home for our kids, right? Uh, And every time I think about that, I just think about... Uh, I think it was Jerry Seinfeld that said, anytime you want to buy a dog, just imagine the dog and then put a big pile, a pyramid of Alpo dog food cans on one side of the dog and imagine what comes out the other side. And that will help you not to want the dog. So that's what I think about. But I, I see the desires for new things and upgraded things and more things. It just creeps up. And meanwhile, as I see that, I'm thinking, here I am, I'm working hard as a Christian I'm trying to be righteous. I'm trying to seek first the kingdom. I'm trying to get my family to midweek. I'm trying to do all the things that I'm supposed to be doing, and it's so challenging. And I'm looking at everyone else. It seems like they got everything they want. And I start to have that feeling of, I don't want too much, but I want a little more than I got. And I think the more you explore that, the more you pray about that, The more you consider that, I think you're going to see covetousness come into your life in ways you've never seen it before. What is it that you covet? What what is it that you have an over-desire for? You know, I have to confess with the Apostle Paul that my own heart is just utterly sinful. I see those desires there. And I want to see God restrain those things and mature me into maturing in the way God wants me to be. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. I started out talking about frustration, and this is the part that talks quite a bit about being frustrated. Verse 14, it says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. do. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Now that's a little bit of a tongue twister. But it describes the frustration that so often people experience. This idea of I I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. It's a challenge, this frustrating experience that so many Christians experience. You know God wants you to live a fruitful life, but sin runs really deep. There's this struggle that's raging inside of us. And so we learn that the law is holy, but it's powerless to make us holy. What can we learn about this frustrated man that we read about here? Uh, One thing I would say is... Uh, Galatians 5, if you're familiar with this chapter, uh, Galatians 5 also describes this conflict that's uh, waging war between our sinful nature and our our spiritual life. Uh, But Galatians 5 and Romans 7 both speak of that conflict with uh, our flesh or our sinful nature. But I think they're actually different. Galatians acknowledges a conflict but promises victory now for those who walk in the Spirit. Well, Romans 7 describes perpetual defeat. And so, my understanding, and I think there's probably even people in this room that might disagree with me, but my understanding is that Romans 7 is describing an immature Christian, not the normal, healthy Christian. And so, if you want a description of a healthy Christian life, you got to look to Romans chapter 8. And so, I don't think that Paul is describing his own current state. Uh, in his own spiritual life when he writes this, I think he's actually narrating this sort of experience of an unspiritual man. That's actually what verse 14 says, right? It says, I am unspiritual. And so he's describing this unspiritual man. And I think there's a couple things that stick out to me. One, the frustrated man appears to know nothing, either in understanding or experience of the Holy Spirit. Right? The Spirit is actually mentioned only in verse 6 in this chapter. And there, it's describing that the Christian age is the age of the Spirit. So I would actually expect that Romans chapter 7 would talk about the Holy Spirit all over this chapter. But we don't read about that until Romans chapter 8. And so two things strike me about this unspiritual man. I put the, verse, the two verses up on the screen In verse 15, it says, I do not understand what I do. And in verse 18, he says, I know the good I ought to do, but I cannot carry it out. So in other words, the unspiritual man lacks both self-awareness and self-control. This is what is normal about an unspiritual person, that they they don't really understand what's actually going on inside of them, and they don't have the self-control to live it out. These are two things that the Spirit does in our life that the Holy Spirit brings about greater self-awareness of what's going on inside and brings about a greater self-control in our life so that we could actually live out the things that God calls us to in our Christian life. Now, I want to understand the deeper waters in my own life. I want to be able to grow to live this fruitful life that God calls us to. Um I think uh, one of the the most formative events in my upbringing, I don't know if I always thought this, but one of the most formative events in my my life would be when my mom committed suicide when I was 11. And so that, obviously, as I've kind of gotten older, as a a Christian especially, I've been able to explore that and think about some of the effects of that in my own life. And, And I think one of the things that that's led to in my own life is I think it sort of flared up that desire for approval And significance and value. And so I've had this sort of growing desire, which usually leads in my own life to performing well and working hard. And so as I crave those things being fulfilled, uh, I can throw myself into uh, work uh, when I was younger, but now it's even ministry work. That can be the thing that can be a good thing, but actually can become bad as it sort of tugs my life out of balance. And then all of a sudden, all these other God-given responsibilities are out of whack as I go after fulfilling those things. And so these things can become out of whack, which leads to guilt, which leads to anger and frustration when my my work is not going well or fulfilling. And so there's all sorts of things that could lead me down a road that's really frustrating. And then I want to have greater self-control, being able to set better limits in my own life and uh, making sure there's limits in ministry work in favor of creating space for those other relationships and important things in life, finding significance and value and approval not in other relationships but in God and being grateful and enjoying the good things that God provides. You know, we gotta think as we struggle with our Christian life, the frustrating things that go on, that the Holy Spirit wants to work to help us to realize what's going on, wants to work in our life to help us to overcome and live this victorious life as a Christian. And I don't think any of us are going to live a victorious life apart from the work of the Spirit in our life. So what that means is we're going to have to learn how to walk with the Spirit. One of the ways that I think we can process this and think about this is in Acts chapter 2 when we read about those first 3,000 people becoming Christians and receiving the indwelling Holy Spirit, what did those Christians do? They didn't just sort of passively sit there thinking, I guess the Spirit's going to take over and I can sit and relax. But they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and prayer and the fellowship and the breaking of bread. And those aren't ways of earning the Spirit's work in our life. It's the means by which the Holy Spirit works to transform us and to build us up. You're not going to be able to have a fruitful life apart from a, a prayerful life. You're not going to have a fruitful life apart from a depth of insight in the Word of God. You're not going to be able to have this fruitful life apart from a shared life and mission with other disciples. It's the ways that God works to build us up. Lastly, this chapter closes out in verse 25. And this will lead us into communion. The last point is motivated. Now just one verse. But as he... Transitions from this frustrating experience, and eventually we'll go on in the chapter eight, which will be the next two Sundays. He just says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. You know, if you remember back in Romans chapter one, that downward spiral. Of the immoral man that's talked about? Do you remember where that began? With not glorifying God or giving thanks to Him. So the the downward spiral begins when we begin to not acknowledge God as God, to glorify Him and give thanks to Him. And where does transformation begin? Gratitude. It begins with a a thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Are you a grateful person? The motivation for the Christian life begins with thanksgiving. And notice that he's not merely thankful for forgiveness, but there's plenty to be thankful for there, obviously. But he's grateful because God will ultimately rescue him from this body of death and deliver him from sin. And so for the Christian, it's not merely that the penalty of sin is removed from their life, but someday the presence of sin is going to be completely eradicated from your life. And so everything that frustrates you about you will be no more. And so as we think about that, let's think about what your vision is for your Christian life. Is it this idea of being fruitful? What's your experience of the Christian life? Is it this frustrated Christian, Christianity that's self-focused, or is it this motivated Christian life that's Jesus-focused? So let's pray as we take the Lord's Supper, and we will be able to take communion together. Uh, Father in heaven, God, I know that uh, we've all wrestled with that frustration Uh, that realization that we're more sinful than we ever imagined. Uh, I pray, Father, that as we wrestle with that, as we think through that, uh, as we begin to explore all the ways that our own hearts have been led astray, uh, I pray that we would be eager with anticipation to get into Romans chapter 8. I pray that your spirit would fill us, that your spirit would illuminate our understanding of your word, Uh, most clearly our understanding of the gospel and the good news that we have help us to be filled with gratitude Uh, we know that we can't just manufacture gratitude by saying just the right words and saying thank you thank you over and over but help us to to really understand what jesus has done for us help us to wrap our hearts and our minds around that and I pray that as we understand in a deeper way the the truths of the gospel, I pray that we would be motivated, that we would be compelled, that we would be strengthened, that we would be empowered by your spirit uh, to be living these fruitful lives. Uh, Please bless our church as a fellowship, that we would uh, be a community that is truly set apart from the world around us, that we would be uh, a church that is different, a church that has been Uh, radically transformed by your grace and by the gospel. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.